Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Yes, it's Annie here for you, Solidarity Breakfast. And this morning we've got lots of things to bring to you for your breakfast with politics. Uh, we're going to go and visit uh, Mel's. No, it's not a disease. It's actually the Melbourne Activist Legal Support Group. They had a, uh, a little meeting last week and it was about the uh, anti-masking and public order bill which is uh, approaching the upper house in Victoria. It's already passed the lower house and it's going to the upper house. There doesn't seem to be much uh, opposition within the parliament to the curtailing of uh, people's rights to protest. But we're going to talk a little bit about that and what it means, what the actual law is and uh, what they're proposing, why they think it's a good idea, why Mel's and others don't think it's a very good idea or it's unnecessary. And we're then going to have a piece from one of the speakers, which was uh, Emily Howie, who's from the Human Rights Legal Centre, who their brief is to uh, look at uh, how laws are uh, either advancing or uh, curtailing Australians' right to uh, a democratic process. And uh, she looks at uh, a variety of things that are going on right at this moment, including Bob Brown's, or particularly Bob Brown's, uh, uh, the the former Greens leader's action that uh, against the Tasmanian... laws that are curtailing people's ability to protest, their anti-protesting laws. He's taken their laws to the uh, High Court. Uh, that's It's a very interesting process that's going on at the moment. Later on, we're going to be speaking to uh, Jeff Feidler from uh, Fair Go for Pensioners to get their assessment of what's going on, especially after the budget. Uh, we're going to then, oh, I've got this, great, we've got this is the week that was, but we've got this great piece. I went down to uh, uh, Feminism in the Pub. That was a great event on, it's the second one coming out of uh, the uh, Victorian Trades Hall's uh, Women's Centre uh, down at uh, the, um, oh, what's it called, the 
Bear and Hound or something. It's a, a pub down in uh, Flinders Lane. Sorry, I, I can't remember the name of the pub. Uh, but uh, because they did a good job and I should remember. Uh, anyway, uh, what I've done is uh, put together Sally McManus's comments. Uh, if you want a further real understanding of what happened at feminism at the pub, I suggest that you listen to the upcoming uh, edition of A Women on the Line because uh, Giselle's going to put together a, a more uh, nuanced piece around all the panellists' responses. But I thought today on Solidarity of Breakfast you might appreciate hearing some of the things that Sally McManus had to say not just about sexism in general, sexism directed against her, sexism within the union movement, but her general comments about uh, uh, unionism and uh, her role now as the secretary of the ACTU. It was a great night, great night. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. There's lots of things coming up for activists to think about. The Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate with Rod Quantock is on again. Saturday, June the 17th at the Brunswick Town Hall. MC extraordinaire Rod Quantock will host two teams of comedians debating whether fake news is real news. Comedians include Sean Bedlam, Gabe Hogan, Shirley Hood, Kirsty Mack, Morvan Smith and Pauline Fartson, Hellchild. The Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate. Saturday, June the 17th at the Brunswick Town Hall. Corner Sydney Road and Dawson Street, Brunswick. Doors open at 6.30pm. For bookings, go to trybooking.com forward slash Q-A-E-N or call 9639 8622. That's 9639 8622, a 3CR supporter. Sounds like a good night, good lot of comedians there and a great topic the uh, Green Left Weekly or Green Left Comedy Debate that happens annually. As I said, we're now going to look at the uh, anti-masking laws. Now, the anti-masking laws uh, were a response to perhaps uh, uh, some violence that happened at uh, uh, in Coburg, I think, uh, last June when they there was uh, rallies between fascist and anti-fascist forces. Uh, there was a. Um, if you had anything to do with that, you would remember that uh, the police were at the uh, train stations, uh, frisking people, <laughs> that sort of thing. It was uh, quite an event. Uh, it uh, there was a lot of hullabaloo coming out of the Sun Herald. Uh, there was also uh, quite a uh, song and dance uh, outside uh, Parliament at the top of. Uh, Spring Street, there uh, anti-fascist forces being pitted against fascist forces who were, I have to say, well protected by the Victorian police. And the Victorian police were happily spraying around this incredibly dreadful uh, um, spray into people's eyes. It was absolutely pepper spray it was absolutely outrageous and it was indiscriminate and it went right across uh people you know like people who just standing there and uh it was just horrendous anyway there was a general hullabaloo coming from the uh, right-wing press about how you know it's all getting out of hand and uh, in fact uh it, the, one of the liberal uh parliamentarians is uh 
it's quoted as saying that uh, wearing masks indis- indicates evil intent. So this was one of the points where people began to wear masks uh, across their faces. Not just the anonymous masks, but uh, they were wearing masks that were uh, similar to the get-up that you uh, anti-fascist forces in Germany, young demonstrators in Germany were wearing. So they had a fantastic sort of get-up of uh, black uh, hats, black uh, body, you know, clothes and uh, um, uh, black uh, uh, pieces of material across their faces. So it was quite dramatic quite dramatic indeed uh, but anyway I think this is one of the reasons for why it was uh, it's uh, reached a uh, hysterical point and that the uh, government's decided it's going to put up this uh, bill it's called and it's in this bill it's uh, decided to uh, include a new uh, law called violent disorder now you've got to put uh, there's always been a common law uh, uh, you know, for uh, riot um, and other types. Of, you know, th- there's three different uh, levels within common law that leads up to riot, uh, which is supposed to uh, uh, control uh, antisocial behaviours en masse in the street. But this is the legislative uh, approach to creating uh, law around... Uh, uh, curtailing people's behaviours on the street. Uh, it's argued that actually we don't need new laws because there's already existing laws. So what does violent disorder mean? Violent disorder has meant that uh, they've in- they want to increase the uh, maximum penalties, 10 years maximum for this violent disorder or um, uh, thing. And uh, if you do this violent disorder with a mask on you you can get a maximum um a maximum uh penalty of 15 years apparently and uh it get this law this new law that they're putting forward and which will probably be passed on May the 24th police will have specific powers to order people to remove a face mask and there will be a new offence if people don't comply. Now, this is all within a designated protest area. The police designate areas and they can do this quite quickly. They have to uh, put it up on their website to say that uh, this is a designated protest area and within these areas, that's where the uh, police will be able to use this new law, okay? Uh, The lawyers at the uh, event that I went to pointed out that it's very unusual for these maximum sentences to actually be handed down, but that they are quite extraordinarily high. Now, the thing about the masks is that uh, there will be no exception. So when people have used masks to express political opinions, like... um, Annie Zabel, who's a very famous uh, protester, local protester against anti-nuclear. He's an anti-nuclear protester. He commonly comes with a mask and a get-up. Religious, uh, people who have religious uh, uh, reasons for wearing masks, that's not an exception. And one of the most incredible things is that uh, you have, it's not an exception to protect your face so as I was saying, the indiscriminate approach of police with this incredible uh, 
this incredible uh, pepper spray. It's not. It, it's if you haven't seen it, it it really it does fit into the category of chemical weaponry, and they're indiscriminate when they use it. It's quite extraordinary because they are being trained to use this kind of weaponry instead of having a personal contact because it's considered to be a lesser evil for the worker, the police person, uh, in an OH&S sense. Unbelievable stuff. Anyway, the point is that it's uh, at this particular event I went to, uh, these are the types of things they were talking about. Uh, but what was fascinating to me was what Emily Howie had to say because she's from the... Uh, she's from an organisation that uh, looks at human rights, the Human Rights Legal Centre, and uh, she had some very interesting things to say about a general approach across Australia to curtail, to have efforts to curtail a, a, a citizens' democratic right to express themselves in a public way. What I'd like to cover is actually kind of broadening out from Victoria and really looking at what's happening here as part of a trend across Australia of governments passing laws that restrict our ability to stand together and speak out on matters that we care about. And you see it in attempts in Western Australia to pass anti-protest laws. That bill luckily didn't pass and there was a change of government and the new government has abandoned any attempt to pass that law. So that's a, that's a real win for us, I think. Uh, but we did see new anti-protest laws passed in New South Wales last year. Uh, and um, in, t- in 2015, Tasmania passed anti-protest laws that have now been the subject of high court litigation just a couple of weeks ago. I think, you know, what the, I'm from the Human Rights Law Centre. We, um, part of what we are really interested in is ensuring that our rights to free speech and to protest are properly protected in Australia. And that's made difficult by a legal system that doesn't always acknowledge protest rights or um, freedom of expression uh, or protect them all that well. So... In terms of the Tasmanian law, it's been it's gone to the High Court under the implied freedom of political expression in the Australian Constitution. Just to give you a bit of background to that case and to those laws, Tasmania in 2015 passed laws that made it an offence for a protester to hinder, disrupt or interfere with a business activity. And the way protester is defined in the bill, or sorry, in the Act, is a person who's expressing a political or social or environmental um, or economic opinion. So essentially what... And the Act applies either on business premises, so you can't kind of hinder or disrupt business activity on private property, but it also applied to what they called business access areas. And that means what could effectively be public land and um, entrances to, to buildings, entrances that could really just be a public street. So a lot of civil society down in Tasmania were really concerned about these laws 
resisted them being passed, but the government was absolutely dead keen on passing it, saying that it was absolutely necessary to protect the business interests in um, Tasmania, that businesses had a right to be free from interruption and interference from protest, and it was in the interests of the Tasmanian economy. And so for all of these reasons, the government pushed through the laws, which was incredibly worrying. In Tasmania, the maximum penalty was $10, a $10,000 fine or four years' imprisonment for what could effectively be somebody waving placards or on a megaphone, even just for a couple of minutes, in a public space, because that somehow interrupted a business activity. So we're not necessarily talking about the blockade or a picket. We're talking about, under, this, under the terms of this law, what could even just be a momentary interruption to a business. And the law did carve out protected industrial activity so that if you're taking protected industrial activity under the Commonwealth or state industrial laws, then, you, then the anti-protest laws don't apply. But nonetheless, there's plenty of other protests and, and ways that people want to express themselves and also express their opinions about what Tasmanian businesses are doing. You know, we've got like a big forestry industry down in Tasmania that is very controversial at times and um, governments can make the kinds of decisions that they see fit but they can't be shutting down people's ability to say what they think about those decisions and that was the, the fundamental flaw with this bill. Just after the Act was passed, Bob Brown, the former Senator and Greens leader, went up to the Laponia Forest where there was a new controversial uh, logging activity going on and was walking through the forest with a film crew in his woolly jumper, sort of showing the showing what was going on in the forest and, and, and talking about it to camera, saying, you know, this is destruction of the environment. Um, we're, we're really worried about some of the local wildlife. You know, and you can hear the sort of trees being knocked over because they're clear, clearing it um, and widening a road at the same time. Um, and essentially a policeman comes along and, you know, in complete completely opposite to what happened with Occupy or other protests. There's sort of lovely local policeman who comes and, and is very apologetic, but it's like, you know, you're going to have to leave because, you know, you're, you're violating our anti-protest laws. Bob says, look, I'm sorry, I'm not going to leave. Uh, I think it's really important that I'm here. I'm, I'm gathering information that I'm going to disseminate to my networks and tell them about what's happening in this forest. And um, then because he doesn't leave, he doesn't comply with the direction of the police, Bob was arrested. And so um, Bob was then taken to court and he um, decided that he would challenge uh, the validity of that law. He said, I'm going to, instead of, well as well as kind of fighting the criminal charge that he now had under these laws, he said, I'm going, to, I'm going to question whether or not these laws are even valid 
because the Australian Constitution has this implied freedom of political communication and I think this law is inconsistent with it. So that's kind of how the case came about and he was and he was joined in that case by another local woman, Jessica Hoyt, who was a local Laponia woman who's really young, loves the forest, grew up grew up around there and was basically arrested walking her dogs in in the forest. So you can see on the on one level that the law that the government's saying we want to stop all of this hindering of business activities, but actually it's just it's just stopping people from really just walking down forest roads or, th- or through the forest. So Bob had his own legal team. The Human Rights Law Centre, we intervened in the case because uh, we thought that Bob's team raised, had a really good case, that it was a, it's a really important principle, and um, we wanted to provide some of the international um, and comparative case law from jurisdictions where they actually protect the rights to freedom of assembly and um, freedom of speech really well and also freedom of association. And I don't know how many of you know much about the High Court, but they don't really like looking at that kind of international stuff all that much. So strategically, it can be better for that not to be, those arguments not to be put by the plaintiff. Um, the, the hearing was a couple of weeks ago and in Canberra, and so all the seven members of the High Court sat and uh, essentially uh, Bob argued that the laws, because they, the law actually directly defines protesters as people who are expressing these opinions, and he was saying it's a direct burden on our political communication. Like, this, this isn't a law that's kind of... or the indirect effect of it might be to suppress speech. It's actually directed at speech. So he said the court, the court needs to take that really seriously. Um, and even though none of us have an absolute right to free speech, you know, it's it's appropriate at times that uh, that we don't say certain things like hate speech or an incitement to crime. That we also make sure that as much as possible we have the speech that that we need. And essentially, this law went too far. Well. Every state and the Commonwealth, except Western Australia, which withdrew from the case, appeared at the High Court arguing in support of Tasmania. Now, what we're listening to is uh, Emily Howie. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and uh, Emily is from the Human Rights Law Centre. She's She was talking at a Melbourne activist legal support forum about the... Uh, changes the anti-masking laws that Victoria Parliament is looking at right now. Uh, But her perspective on the increasing uh, movement by governments across Australia to curtail uh, demonstrations and protests, particularly focusing themselves against protests that will basically curtail the freedom of the big end of town to to, uh, destroy and pollute the environment, it would appear, but you know, yeah, just just my view. Emily Howie probably concurs. This is the last part of what Emily had to say. So uh, Victoria was there, which was really disappointing uh, because Victoria has a Charter of Rights, 
Um, and essentially, we, we see that Victoria should be a standard bearer for these kinds of things. So it's kind of interesting to think of the connection between this bill here and the reason why Victoria might have been in Canberra arguing for the state's right to actually limit protest. Hopefully we get a decision in the next few months about really the extent to which states are able to pass laws that infringe on our rights to free speech and to protest. Um, I think that the, we, we don't have a huge amount of protection in Australian law, but the court actually has an opportunity to even clarify that we have a freedom to assemble. And I, I don't know that they'll go that far, but they might... What we can hope for, I think, is that they might limit the ability of states to, to um, pass laws that just go too far in terms of limiting, um, limiting our free speech. And also, I think, you know, limiting free speech for the, for the benefit of vested business interests. Um, this, is, this is something that's completely uh, inconsistent with international human rights law. Um, you can limit free speech in order to protect other rights or in order to protect public order, but you, there's, no, there's not been a case where it's ever been decided that you can limit people's rights in order to satisfy business. You know, business does not have any special right to be free from interruption. Business should be treated as part of our community and, and it needs to be part of that cut and thrust of the debate as well. So maybe I'll just, I'll just finish with a couple of reflections about the Victorian laws and, and what I see as the broader trend across Australia, because I think this anti-protest law stuff is, is really worrying. I mean, even just... We, ha we had it with G20 laws. You have it whenever there's, like, a big event, par Parliament's passing these new laws... I think it's quite interesting that in Victoria the rationale is so different to the other states. The other states have all been about satisfying basically the fossil fuel industry that, they're, that they won't be interrupted by, you know, lock the gate or uh, other people who are going to lock on to equipment or whatever it's going to be. They, so that's really what's driving... Tasmania, WA and New South Wales. And this isn't me sort of saying my opinion. This is what is said in parliamentary debate. You know, it is being done to protect those interests. And I, like, that is really worrying that, that our parliament and our, and our representatives are so beholden to these interests that they would actually sell our rights off to enable them to essentially make more money and live free from interruption. And, you know, apart from that difference, one of, one of the big um, problems that all of these laws do is give police an enormous amount of discretion. And, and with that kind of discretion comes the real risk of people being harmed or subject to excessive force or inappropriate use of that discretion. And then this isn't just discretion about whether or not your, your act is criminal or not. This is discretion about whether or not 
your speech falls into a particular category. And it's, and it's you know, one of the things that the judges in the High Court were trying to come to terms with was, how can, how can a policeman <laughs> in these situations be expected to determine that somebody is, um, is a protester, for a start, their, their speech falls into the particular categories and they have a reasonable belief that what they are going to do is going to hinder a business activity. Like, they have to, they have to be incredibly well-equipped in a range of uh, political, social, environmental and economic issues and then they have to essentially read the mind of the person who's committing it and then the person has to be essentially hindering the activity. Um, and, and, and another similarity is in all these cases there are other laws that can deal with the situation. Now, it's, it's pretty compelling that in Victoria we have already got an offence to do with disguising with intent to commit an unlawful act that's essentially... That's, we don't need another law. We should be resisting <coughs> Parliament's passing laws that kind of further restrict what we do, um, but also by putting a tax on our political activity. Because... And this is the same in Tasmania. You know, if, if you have people who are at the gates of a, a business who are protesting, they could, they could get essentially a four-year sentence. Whereas if somebody was simply there and committed the common law offence of nuisance or besetting, which, which could be similar, they wouldn't, get an, they wouldn't get a penalty anywhere near that big. So you can you see that actually... In effect, you're penalising people because they're doing something, but they're doing it with political purposes or whilst expressing a political opinion. And that, and I, I think that's really worrying. So, you know, I, I think the Victorian laws... I, I think, you know, it's interesting because there's some real rationale for passing laws that prevent violence and, and people being hurt. And I think you know, mentioning the Ku Klux Klan or even just the violence of Coburg, you can see that there is, in some senses, a rationale for, for some sort of action. But we've got to be really careful that that action isn't something that restricts people who aren't violent, who are peaceful protesters, who are expressing themselves wearing masks, from, from doing something that's essentially causing no harm. So, you know, I think the Victorian laws need to be resisted because they're part of really a national trend where governments are just chipping away at our rights. And this might, this might not be as egregious as other laws, but it's a serious infringement. Um, and it's interesting that the Victorian SARC committee, the Scrutiny of Acts and Regulations Committee, has actually referred this issue back to the Parliament, asking about whether it's consistent with the implied freedom of political communication. Because that was exactly the question that was before the High Court with the Tasmanian laws. And you know, some of the, you can see how some of the arguments against Tasmania, like the fact there was already laws that 
that covered this perfectly would apply equally to Victoria. So it's definitely worth having a look at if the bill passes. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. Fair Go for Pensioners is holding a protest rally on Wednesday the 24th of May at the State Library of Victoria at 11am to defend our rights against continuing cuts to welfare payments and essential public services. This means down goes living standards of low-income groups and up goes poverty. Australia does not have a welfare problem, it has a poverty problem. Take a stand with Fair Go for Pensioners to defend your rights. The State Library of Victoria, 11am, Wednesday the 24th of May. Fair Go for Pensioners is a 3CR supporter. And you're on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR with Annie. And on the line, we've got Jeff Feidler from uh, Feidler from uh, Figo from Pensioners. Uh, g'day, Jeff. How are you? Yeah, good morning. Good, thanks. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm really keen to hear a little bit about the reaction that uh, Figo for Pensioners has to the uh, past budget. Yeah, well, there's been such a lot of talk about a housing affordability over recent months and um, the Commonwealth Treasurer, Scott Morrison, has been talking about um, doing a lot on housing affordability and um, so I suppose there was a lot of expectation that there there may be some things done around housing affordability Um, but I've got to say that the announcements have been extremely disappointing. Um, probably the two fronts that um, we were concerned about is that um, there was to be discussion around changes to the National Affordable Housing Agreement and also the National Partnership Agreement on Homelessness. These are the two fundamental um, funding areas for public housing and, and social housing, as well as funding for homelessness services across Australia. Um, these areas need just massive boosts of funds if we're going to get any decent public housing increases on the ground across Australia. And we were even fearing that um, that there could be cuts to that to that budget. So, what um, did uh, what did the treasurer say specifically? It, it, was there any joy at all? Um, well, the, there was. It's basically a maintenance of that of those agreements, except what they're changing is that they're going to a uh, back to a form of tied grants where the, the commitments um, of funding will be agreed between the Commonwealth and the states. So, but the real issue is that there's no basic um, massive agree, um, improvement in, in the funds that are going to be provided. It's just like a CPI increase. So what, got, you, what, you know, you're, got, what you're saying is that in actual fact, we've got this, uh, it's not even a Band-Aid for the situation that we're actually in at the moment as a country and for low-income people and, in fact, people no. who aren't that low-income either. Yeah, we've got 200,000-plus people on public housing waiting lists across Australia and that's that's the, the disaster we've got um, facing us. The people that services like Housing for the Aged Action Group see are people in the private rental market who are paying 70 to 80% of their income in rent. Um, there's really nothing in this budget that really assists those sorts of people on low incomes. The big announcement from the Treasurer was um, that the introduction of what they're calling a, a bond aggregator. 
which is really um, making um, an investment fund available from the Commonwealth for private businesses and perhaps not-for-profit businesses to borrow to to build um, affordable housing. But that's really just, again, um, you know, a, a fund that's going to you know, incrementally provide some affordable housing, but it will probably be for people on higher incomes than those on pensions and benefits. Yeah, yeah. so what you're saying, it's a free kick for developers and it's not public housing. Exactly. There's nothing in this budget that's going to increase public housing as such, and that's that's the, the, the real need. Um, there's another measure in terms of providing um, some concessions for first homeowners where they can... Uh, perhaps borrow against their, their superannuation funds to, uh, or put savings into a superannuation type fund to lead towards paying a deposit on a house. But people are saying that that's just going to increase um, the price of houses across the country because as soon as um, home buyers, home sellers know that there's this extra money there that people can pay, it, this with all other areas of that type of um, change, um, house prices just go up to absorb it. Yeah, it's really so interesting it's... because it's like the uh, the treasurer hasn't uh, remembered his childhood fables where you've got the uh, one the ant that just uh, beavers away and then you've got the uh, other that uh, lives for the moment. So, I mean, if, you, uh, if you're going to uh, 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 take money from your superannuation, what happens later on? Exactly. Well, superannuation is you know, supposed to be a fund to help people later in retirement, so it, it doesn't make sense to, to be using that in any way. And, you know, you look at the disadvantage to younger people in all sorts of other areas in, in this budget around um, uh, education, uh, extra cost there. So, you know, you've got so many young people who are, may be trying to buy a, new, buy a home, but they've also got all these extra education costs. They've got to pay back to the government at the same time. So... The pressures on the next generations are, you know, are extreme, really. So what's, but, um, what's this government aiming to do, do you think? Well, I mean, its ideological process is to actually dismantle the safety net. That's what it appears to be. It is. It's, it's a, obviously a free enterprise um, government and it believes the market will sort it out. And we, we know that just can't happen for people on low incomes. Um, we've just done a study in South Australia that shows that uh, for older people, uh, about over 50% of the people in the Adelaide metropolitan area are paying a proportion of their um, income in rent that they just can't afford. Um, we're about to start doing a study in Sydney and we're, we see in Sydney where rents for one-bedroom properties are over $400 a week. That would take all oh of the God, attention so much. of an older person. That's so and much. Sydney is so bad now that we think that older people basically can't rent in the private rental market. They must be staying with family and friends to be able to survive. So let alone people who are on new start allowances or youth allowances, um, that, that's just completely, as you're saying, it's, um, it's, it's a, a budget that's really not addressing the needs of people on low incomes in, in any way. And it's really actually actively is working against those people and pushing people into poverty. Um, I'm actually in Sydney at the moment um, for work and I've just been astonished at the numbers of people uh, sleeping rough in the streets in Sydney, um, in the parks around town, and we've got the same uh, problems right across Melbourne. And if, you know, governments can't 
you know, see these sorts of problems. It's in, it's in everyone's face now how bad homelessness is. And we need a specific strategy, like um, a, a strategy to address this for the future or else this is just going to keep getting much worse all the time. So you're in Sydney at the moment. Are you there as a, an advocate for uh, uh, public housing or what's, what's your, what are you doing there? We're, we're doing a project um, in our organisation that's trying to um, improve housing for older people across the country. So we're, we're trying to do a lot of national work at the moment, um, but also just in a very basic way try and improve services for older people because at the moment um, if an older person is in trouble in Victoria, at least they can come to a service like um, our Home at Last service at Housing for the Aged. But in other states of Australia, there really aren't many services that, that older people can go to just to get some basic help. So this is, again, what I was saying before about the National Affordable Housing Agreement. The other one is the National Partnership Agreement on, on Homelessness, which is homelessness funding that, that has basically been static in terms of its funding for a number of years now. And every time the budget comes up, we fear that it's going to be under threat again. Um, but at least there's been enough... Um, public pressure to maintain those agreements, but it's nowhere near the demand that's that's required in terms of the the increases in homelessness. Now it's interesting, um, isn't it? Because the, uh, I mean, it's all very well to talk about the, uh, you know, uh, pots of money and all the rest of it, but the uh, what the government's doing is quite specific, isn't it? it it's quite specifically backing the notion that uh, private business. Uh, the capitalist uh, focus of making profits is actually the only way to lubricate the machine. It's the petrol for our engine, for our our community. But they're really ignoring their function as a government, aren't they? Well, it's even you know, um, it's quite blatant. And and again, if I could just give you a couple of examples in Sydney, there's. A couple of um, places um, called Miller's Point and also the Sirius Building that have been places where um, people have lived in public housing for, for decades and decades. And the government is just going through a process in New South Wales at the moment of selling off those uh, that public housing. Um, and these are incredibly fantastic inner city uh, locations in Sydney. And they're going to be handed over to developers to develop into private um, uh, apartments and um, redeveloped into very high-value housing. And the public tenants that have lived there for decades are now in the process of being pushed out and evicted from this housing. And they're being rehoused in other public housing, but perhaps many kilometres out of the centre of Sydney. So it's quite a blatant... Um, process of gentrification and taking over of really valuable public housing inner city land that you can never get back again once you give it away. We've had similar things in Melbourne with some of the, as they call them, project partnerships. So again, as you say, the, the, the only way the government ever does so-called affordable housing developments these days is to get businesses involved and um, where they take over a whole lot of public housing land they get at least half the land to build um, private apartments and dwellings on it and they then squeeze the same amount of public housing they had before on, on the other half of the land that's left. So, again, even where these developers are involved in these um, 
public oh, but you know, it's not issue. it's not just that. It's it, it, this moral uh, looking their noses down at people as if uh, they've got a right to squash the public into the dirt. Well, it it, it is that sense, isn't it, that um, that the people are responsible for their own fate, and if, if that's uh, if they haven't worked hard. Um, what was it Joe Hockey said? The lifters and the leaners. Um, that's that's their attitude. Or as I like to call him, fat boy. Yeah, and I've, I've heard that the, the origins of that statement was actually from a, the right-wing economist, Ayn Rand, who, who talked about um, uh, provide, providers and parasites, I think it was something like that, that he described it. That's how he divided society and lifters and leaders are basically the same, saying the same thing. Yeah, it's outrageous. You you were saying I rudely interrupted. You were saying that uh, these public private partnerships actually uh, shortchange the public, as it were. Well, you know where you've got areas of public housing land in fantastic inner city locations that have, you know, from governments that have developed these um, this housing going back to you know the sec- just after the Second World War. And our cities have grown so much. And where people on low incomes need to live in good locations, close to services and amenities, um, if you sell off that land and give it to developers, you can never get it back again. So it just pushes people on low incomes out to the fringes. Um, And again, what I'm seeing here in Sydney is that people are being pushed out as far as the Blue Mountains. I mean, we're talking about people having to move to country areas to get any sort of affordable housing in, in rental. But of course, you also have the other problem that um, that if you move to country areas, there's a lack of supply. I mean, apparently Barnaby Joyce a little while ago made a statement that the answer to housing affordability is everyone should move to towns like Tamworth. Um, well, I mean, that you might be. Uh, 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 you know, you know it's interesting because Tamworth is actually. I mean, we're now entering uh, autumn winter, but Tamworth was in this a terrible drought sort of situation, you know, 40-degree days endlessly. Yeah. So it then leads you to wonder about water supply, for example. Is that what you're getting at? Well, yes. Yeah, in terms of housing, there's there's not enough rental housing supply in country areas. Um, so, you know, the private rents may be lower, but um, there's, there's just not the... the the, the amount of houses that are that are necessary, but also and the social dislocation is incredible. I mean, the 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 notion that urban uh, people moving to a country town would be absorbed in an easy, free and easy way in an Australian context is absurd. Yeah, and you know, there's all the, the talk about tree changes and sea changes, that sort of thing. But you know, that's again that middle and upper class notion that people move away choice. in their retirement to live in these wonderful areas. But what we're actually seeing is people on low incomes being pushed far out to those areas, whereas you say that there, there aren't the services there. And particularly for older people who we're concerned about, they're moving away from all sorts of uh, medical facilities, from aged care services, um, and, and public transport's the other massive issue that you really lack when you move, in, move into those country areas. So it's, it's not providing an answer for, for, for anyone really, except pushing the problem away and then making this land available <clears throat> for very rich developers to build housing for people who can afford a um, million dollar plus properties. Well, Jeff, the... I think we'll have to leave. Oh, sorry, that. What were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say, I was astonished the other day to read that <clears throat> in Sydney, the average price of a 
houses $1.1 million. And I think Melbourne's not that far behind. So it's just, you know, but you wonder also how sustainable that that form of housing system is. And, and perhaps we're going to move towards um, a collapse in the housing market at some time is the only way that this is going to, you know, get back to a point where we're going to have to start um, responding to need rather than greed. Well, actually, it's true, of course, because the uh, inflated house prices are also the reason for why rents are so high. Exactly. They're yeah, tied. It translates one to the other. That's yep. exactly right. Um, thank you very much for talking to me today, Jeff. Pleasure, Annie. Yeah, thank you. The Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate with Rod Quantock is on again. Saturday, June the 17th at the Brunswick Town Hall. MC extraordinaire Rod Quantock will host two teams of comedians debating whether fake news is real news. Comedians include Sean Bedlam, Gabe Hogan, Shirley Hood, Kirsty Mack, Morven Smith and Pauline Fartson, Helltrail. The Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate. Saturday, June the 17th at the Brunswick Town Hall, corner Sydney Road and Dawson Street, Brunswick. Doors open at 6.30pm. For bookings, go to trybooking.com forward slash QAEN or call 9639 8622. That's 9639 8622, a 3CR supporter. And of course, there's lots of other things going on as well. It's not just the comedy debate for the green left we've got uh, cultivating murder which is a global warming land clearing and cold-blooded murder a movie that's on this today at uh, 4 p.m at acme uh it's had a rollicking time last saturday but be there if you weren't there last week you could also be uh getting yourself prepared to go to the fundraiser for the upcoming uh 3CR uh, Radiothon, that's uh, starting the 5th of June, going to the 18th, keeping us on air. But uh, the uh, Asia-Pacific Currents people have got a film night, Tuesday the 13th of June, 6.30pm for a 7pm start at Long Play, which is a great little cinema, 318 St George's Road, North Fitzroy. It's a shop front. You go in there and then there's a cinema behind. That's Long Play, 318 St George's Road, Tuesday the 13th of June, 6.30pm for a 7pm start. The uh, film they're playing is called The Factory. It traces the monumental struggle of the Indian auto workers of Maruti Suzuki, uh, Manasa, it's uh, an amazing story of workers' struggle. You won't see it anywhere else. Uh, tickets are $10 concession, $20 waged. There's also, of course, the uh, the anti-subscription or the no-subscription, anti-subscription, conscription conference that's going on starting at 9 o'clock to Day, but I'll let you hear about that through a message. Coming up next is This Is The Week That Was and you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. 
Come along to the May 20th conference, 1916 to 17 anti-conscription campaigns, impacts and legacies. The day-long conference will feature speakers including Barry Jones alongside a host of local historians and will explore issues such as World War I activist groups, the Vietnam War and conscription and war-making powers today. Saturday, May the 20th from 9am to 4.30pm at Siteworks, Saxon Street, Brunswick. Tickets are $20 or $30 for keen supporters. Head to trybooking.com forward slash PGRV for more information and to book tickets. That's trybooking.com forward slash PGRV. The Brunswick-Coburg Anti-Conscription Commemoration Campaign is a 3CR supporter. A weak solidarity, Bricky Teen Listener, when I've realised we've been too subtle about this slow wages growth problem the caring business class and its parliamentary puppets keep complaining about. Our subtlety seems to have gone over their brilliantly intelligent heads. Can't see the problem, we've kept saying. There's a simple answer. Well, obviously, not obviously simple enough. So, okay, so much for subtlety. Are you listening, caring business class and parliamentary puppets? What's the problem? Just increase them. Give workers lots more money. Pay higher wages. It's hardly meant some material. Can we make it any clearer? The answer to slow wages growth is higher wages growth. Their comprehension of uh, the bleeding obvious is essential as they complain that slow wages growth is decelerating, that we have the slowest slow wages growth since they started keeping figures, way below the inflation figure. Interesting that, because the great exponents of, of uh, who know all about the greatest little economic order of them all keep telling us the overwhelming cause of out-of-control inflation is wages growth. Wages, selfish, lazy, avaricious workers and evil unions. So what's caused this inflation if not wages? Surely not. Oh, no, couldn't possibly be. No, no, not greed. And the same expert practitioners of assure we ignorant lay people high wages not only cause high inflation but price workers out of jobs, create unemployment. It's better to have 100% of a low wage than 100% of no wage. So obviously the figures this week will reflect that. Slower than slow wages growth, creating the obverse of that argument. Unemployment must be falling. Employment must have increased. So let's see. Goodness me, can't believe it. Unemployment hasn't come down. God, lucky there was slower than wages growth or nobody would have a job. And those who do, well, many of those who do, comprise the record levels of underemployment. Workers earning lower than slower than slow who wish they could have full-time jobs so they can upgrade from their not-so-comfy little gutters. But in case you think this is a depressing figure, don't panic. Go to the fridge and pop the corks. It's great news. Not just good, but great. And that quote from no economic ignoramus like me, but from Lord Rupert of Wapping's caring business class economic expert, Terry Pucan, who knows all there is to know about the greatest little economic order. In fact, Terry says it would be better for all of us, particularly workers themselves, if slow wage slower than slow was even slower than slower than slow. Slow wages growth is absolutely essential, he saged in that Bible of logic the Wapping sin. Indeed, even a lower growth rate would be just as great or even better. And an even moderately higher growth rate would be a disaster.
So thank goodness wages are falling and prices are rising. And we can safely assume that Terry Pucat is enjoying slow wages growth along with those he advocates are better off for it. Why, he probably rings Lord Rupert every day begging for a wage cut. And don't forget, the same Terry Pucan also makes a strong and logical argument that true Bluwazi should not risk the greatest little economic order of them all by doing anything about the leftist lie of climate change. So when Terry speaks, we have to listen. Or more correctly, when he writes, we have to read. Particularly if we're a fan of fiction. Terry must be thrilled the budget has taken about a week to start looking hopelessly unbalanced as big economic gurus scuttle their more or less sun surplus in four years. Well, every budget predicts a bigger deficit this year and a surplus in four years. Scuttle them surplus was predicated largely on higher and higher wages. Perhaps he does understand, realising more and more payroll tax. In fairness to Scuttlebem, that assumption lasted a whole seven days before sinking without trace. But that most outrageous aspect of the budget, the attack on the poor banks, goes on. We mentioned last week how they, the poor banks, may have to waste trillions on tax lawyers and accountants to ensure they safely circumvent this new threat. Suppose there's some consolation for the poor dears that the bloody fortune on tax lawyers and accountants is itself tax deductible. And don't we love there the the exponents of the greatest little economic orders consistency? When Ken Hungry for Profit was head of Treasury, he wrote that report which led to the ill-fated resource rent tax, a socialist plot forcing the poor besieged resource companies, poor Gina and co, to spend a few trillion to avoid being taxed by a cruel socialist government and prompting the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review to attack Hungry Four for trying to screw the poor miners. But now the same Hungry for Profits is head of the Hungry for Profit Nab Your Money Bank. He has attacked this levy as a war on just everything. How dare the government impose a tax on big business which does so much for all of us, prompting the Capitalist Review this time to back him to the hilt. For the Capitalist Review is as incensed at the injustice and incentive-sapping certainty of this tax as it is always incensed at the greed of evil trade unions, demanding the Capitalist Review, that is, demanding tougher laws until evil unions behave like good trade unions. Because it's a tax art on trade unions. Why, it loves bankers and other caring business class associations and the sundry chambers of profits and directors' bodies. No, it preaches that unions workers ones have a place in the industrial relations scenario and if they behaved like good trade unions and weren't militant and didn't upset caring employers and threaten the delicate flower that is the economy then obviously workers would all be better off it would be good for workers and how can we disagree because the slowest wage growth in eons is a good example of what good trade unionism can achieve Sadly, evil trade unionism rules the roost. Led by the CFMEU with Secretary Dave Oliver and Western True Blue Aussie officials fined 277 grand and the union forced to pay Great True Blue Aussie Corporation John Helland Moore for workers 525 grand over a dispute involving union rights and safety when everyone, well every responsible one knows unions have no rights and no right to have rights. 
but those who know argue the penalties are too light to be a disincentive and the more than three quarters of a million all up should be increased. Same time, salt, sugar and fat purveyor Domino's How to Exploit Workers, run by a very, very, very close mate of Gina's, was guilty of breaking franchise laws and fined $18,000, which the same, those who know, said was outrageous and showed how unfair the law is. On which, back to those tax lawyers and accountants, the banks and others would have advised all these people caught up in this tax fraud business to get better tax lawyers and accountants. And while we're obviously stunned that tax avoidance goes on, listener, those who know would be even more stunned that someone actually got caught. But back to Terry Pukan's caring employer, Lord Rupert. While the rest of the media concentrated on the alleged crooks involved and published their photos, not the whopping sin. No, it managed tax cheat Casanova all over P1. Love Rat and big picky of Love Rat's so-called mistress featuring huge décolletage and a double-page spread inside with six more pickies of her. She's the story. On that, don't our great media proprietors love a good, juicy, poor, true blue Aussie locked up in some foreign hell jail story? The woman in Bali, years of Chappelle, the woman now in Colombia. Every story describing the jail conditions as hell. Tuesday, Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, P1 Pointer, Mum cops another year in Bali hell. Knowing, of course, that right here in true blue Aussie, our prison system is a garden of Eden, a terrestrial paradise. Evil criminals are knocking the door down to get inside. Banner headlines, editorials and letters columns demanding lax authorities, particularly socialist government pejorative Dan lax authorities, inject a large dose of Bali and Colombia hell into our life of luxury system. Why, the whopping sin at the weekend revealed the most shocking examples of that paradise in our youth jail system. Young kids are being given... Sit down, listener, you won't be able to bear the shock, you won't believe this. Given pizzas and worse, taught how to cook. Where's the justice? Joke's on us! Screaming across P1. And as the victims of the joke, surely it's time we acted. How dare these children be taught to cook? How dare they be allowed to eat pizza? Well, well as it turned out, reading on, they are mini pizzas and they're a reward for kids behaving themselves, presumably behave as determined by the authorities. So let's get on the phone and let our MPs know we agree with Lord Rupert and his deep-thinking correspondence that anyone sent to prison, sentenced or on remand, have her his papers stamped, never to be released. The key thrown away and life made a hell. No mini pizzas, no learning life skills like cooking. They won't need them because they'll eat prison food for the rest of their miserable, worthless anti-social lives. Finally, aren't things looking up and up for US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trample the poor, as he denies what he confirmed, then confirms what he denied. Top marks the I Can Keep a Secret Award of the Week to his media bloke, uh, sorry, media guy, for declaring for security reasons he couldn't say where the intelligence came from, but the US have had a close relationship with Israel. Intelligence running riot in the White House. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. Fair Go for Pensioners is holding a protest rally on Wednesday the 24th of May at the State Library of Victoria at 11am. 
to defend our rights against continuing cuts to welfare payments and essential public services. This means down goes living standards of low-income groups and up goes poverty. Australia does not have a welfare problem, it has a poverty problem. Take a stand with Fair Go for Pensioners to defend your rights. The State Library of Victoria, 11am, Wednesday the 24th of May. Fair Go for Pensioners is a 3CR supporter. That was uh, from the first Feminists in the Pub uh, event and uh, the second was on Wednesday and uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. I'm bringing you a little bit of that event. I took the excerpts from Sally McManus's answers to questions and put them together for you because uh, it's fascinating to hear from Sally about her own experiences of sexism uh, how it impinges on her or doesn't, and how uh, the union movement is moving towards a much less uh, sexist, a much more inclusive uh, framework as it goes into the rest of the 21st century. Now, uh, if you want to hear a more uh, nuanced understanding of the Feminists in the Pub event, then you should be listening to Women on the Line because Giselle's going to be putting together some of the answers from the other panellists. But uh, because Solidarity Breakfast has a worker focus, I thought you would be interested in what Sally McManus had to say. She, of course, being the first uh, female Secretary of the ACTU. Hey everyone, I want to pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land. Okay, so what's sexism at work? So there's all the obvious things which I'm not going to go into because we'll get to talk about. So the economic uh, inequalities between um, genders, that's the most um, obvious and big one. Of course, there's the um, all the different forms of violence that was talked about before. But um, I wanted to mention something slightly different. Um, how men will underestimate us and how this can be both a um, something that can hold us back if we internalise it, but something that can be a strength if we use it to our advantage. I've found over the years, over and over, being in rooms with people where um, men will tend to assume the women in the room uh, aren't as smart as them, aren't as capable as them, aren't as able to do do things. And that manifests itself in lots and lots of ways. I've seen women deal with it in different ways as well. Some women just take it on as, okay, it must be true. I mustn't know as much as person X, Y or Z, or bloke X, Y, Z. Um, I've seen um, situations where women have used it in really smart ways, sort of like, you know, ambushing them because they underestimate us letting them underestimate us and then totally outmaneuvering them. So I've, I've been quite impressed um, about that. But the main thing I wanted to say is that the dangers of letting that um, get to you, like in your head, and then you start thinking to yourself, well, maybe I'm not as smart as them. Maybe I'm not as capable as them. So my advice to everyone about that is this. Pick the bloke in that room that you know, you absolutely know that you're smarter just as smart, just as capable, et cetera, et cetera. Watch that bloke. Watch how he's totally confident speaking. Watch how everyone shuts up when he speaks. Watch all of that happen and remind yourself, 
I'm just as smart, just as capable, if not more than him. If he can do it, I certainly can. So I find that's um, uh, a little technique I've used over the years that uh, has certainly um, meant that you've had uh, more confidence and you've avoided internalising it as much as you can. But um, the question you asked about um, my personal experience about uh, sexism at work, my first personal experience, there's been many of them, but you asked my first one. And in a way, it's sort of a minor thing in some ways. But... um, one of my first jobs, I was a Pizza Hut deliverer and um, before becoming a, a Melbourne girl, I was a Sydney girl. And so um, I worked out in Seven Hills, if anyone knows where that is. And it was uh, ages ago. It was like 1990. And bloody Pizza Hut had these terrible um, uh, uniforms you had to wear and women had to wear these like wraparound grey things, right? The things they were. They like went from here down to here and they were just like this wraparound grey thing. Now... I don't care about fashion. I don't care about it at all. I do sort of care about dresses and having to wear those. But um, it was like there was no choice but this like terrible uh, grey thing you had to wear, um, which in the end, like a minor thing but demeaning and actually quite dangerous because um, delivering pieces at Seven Hills at night sometimes is very dangerous. And so um, my first experience of sexism at work. Well, my experience of sexism um, since I've become secretary of the ACTU is different to the um, grey dress thingo. Um, now it's just on social media and it's daily. It's like, look, she's a ma- that's a man, um, ugly lesbian, where are your testicles, where's your penis, like on and on and on. So my way of dealing with that is really simple. I tell um, the staff at the ACTU I have anything to do with social media, I just delete it get rid of it and I totally ignore it. I don't spend one single second of my time or my energy deconstructing it, thinking about it, giving it any time of day. And then I have, um, I have uh, one strategy which is personal to myself and so I, I'm not advocating this as a blueprint for everyone. This is You've got to do what suits you and who you are and, and how it works for you. Um, I take the piss. That's how I do it. So if I walk into a meeting and it's all men, I'll I'll say, Jesus Christ, you know, we've clearly done something wrong, haven't we, fellas? Like, you know, I'll do something like that. I'll always sort of turn it into a joke because in the end I want to have in in their heads, oh, yeah, there is something wrong here, um, but at least leave them with that. That's just the way I deal with it. Now in my new position, this is, this is how I approach it. I, I want to own the space, like own the space of being secretary of the eight, oh, fingers in the air again, so no twinning this, own the space of being the leader of the trade union movement and, and not apologising or conceding it and just, you know, know that you're in that position and you, and you, and you, and you, and you should be there and like just own the space of it. And secondly, know there's responsibility that comes with that and responsibilities on a lot of different levels and one of them is on the level of you're a woman in this position, you've got a responsibility because you've got more power than everyone else to make bigger change, to call things out, to do things. Do you think that sexism at work is an important or significant issue? Why? And if so, what is its impact? And before I throw to the panel, I just want to speak again briefly about our gendered violence campaign. So one of the ways we have framed the campaign 
is we say that gendered violence at work, so sexism, discrimination, harassment, this injures women workers and people who don't identify um, with normative gender stereotypes or roles and who have diverse sexualities. It actually injures them at work. So it's actually an occupational health and safety issue. That's that's the whole framing of our campaign. It's, it is about fairness and equality, but it's also about safety. And when you've got an issue in a workplace that's as prevalent as it is, 64% of women that we've talked to, when it's so prevalent and it's injuring workers, I mean, we have to really start taking this seriously as an industrial issue. So that's our framing, but I'm really interested to hear what the panel think about um, it, sexism in the workplace's ex, um, impact and um, how significant it is. Um, I want to talk about equal pay and the fact that it's moved absolutely nowhere and the fact that the gender pay gap hasn't moved really at all for a quarter of a century, so a long time, at least a generation. And you wonder about why is that? Why hasn't it moved? Well, the first fights for equal pay were about, of course, the fight to be paid the same for exactly the same work. Um, And because enshrined in our laws were two different pay rates, one for men and one for women. Can you believe that we had that? Um, And, of course, unionists and uh, other people fought very hard to change that situation. So to unpack why we still have this persistent 18% uh, 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 a gap, you've got to think about a, a few things. There's the things that we know, and that's the fact that still um, women are the people who take the time out to look after children, and the fact that we don't have um, proper paid parental leave that, that, that fills that gap as well. But there's still more to the story, isn't it? And it's a fact that some work in our society we've valued more than others. And so you look at, uh, say, someone who is a mechanic and fixes cars, they're going to be paid more than someone who is an early childhood educator. And you think about how crazy that is. Like, um, not that cars aren't important, but they're certainly not as important as, as, as children and young people in the next generation. And so you think, well, okay, well, well, how come that's happened? Well, it's been because uh, society has relied on us to do things for free for a very, very long time. And so an ingrained idea that, well, women are the carers anyway. They've been looking after children for free. They look after people with disabilities for free. They look after the elderly for free. And you look about how that then translates to how we value it in the workplace. So disability support workers, early childhood educators and aged care workers, all of them are caring um, professions, aren't they? And because it's a caring profession and because we live in a patriarchy, we don't value caring as much as we value fixing stuff. And so how do we fix that problem? That's a hard, hard you know, thing to answer. It's going to take a lot of struggle. I took some inspiration from um, the women in Iceland who, um, who just decided, well, that's it, we're going on strike. And they all did um, for equal pay. Can we have this agreement for the rest of the time we talk? When I put my finger up like this, that means you're not allowed to tweet what I say, okay? <laughs> so my finger's up at the moment, no tweeting about this one. Don't want it on the front page of this page of the Australian. Then I've got enough of that. So, so maybe we should have like a, a, a national women's strike or a world women's <laughs> strike. <laughs> 
Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. And we're listening to Sally McManus, the new secretary of the ACTU. She was down at the Feminists in the Pub event the other day, which is put on by the Victorian Trades Hall's Women's Centre. And uh, we'll go on, because Sally's absolutely riveting, I reckon. Well, first of all, congratulations to CPSU on your epic fight. Like, who else has a nationwide fight? Three years, pay freezes for a very long time and, you know, the nastiest employer in the country, that being the Turnbull government. So, um, well done to you guys. And, like, all of these fights have never been easy and it's not like they ever have been, And you know, for for us or our parents or our grandparents or or any of those fights um, haven't been... Um, I think that your dispute also illustrates just how broken our system is. And by system, I really mean our rights. Our rights at work are not strong enough. And they're not strong enough because we've seen a whole transfer of power to the top since the global economic crisis. Even without that, they weren't strong enough. Um, Why is it that working people, the fundamental right to withdraw your labour, we can't? withdraw your labour, you're nothing but a slave. And, and that's like just a fundamental human right. And the fact that individuals and their unions are fined and threatened with all of that just stacks all the power in, ha- in the hands of the employers. Now, think about your dispute and, and, and the hope that it can change. Is that a generation ago, less than that, 20 years ago, if you had a, a fight that was going on for that long, workers hadn't had a pay rise, you were, you, were, you were taking industrial action that was threatening our borders, all of that stuff that you've been doing over a period of time, there'd be a way of resolving it. It was a uniquely Australian way that we won, which was, con- uh, which was concilia- conciliation arbitration. We used to have that. We used to have a better um, system where whilst stri- striking wasn't legal... You could do it and the consequences weren't as hard. And if, you, if your employer has in the back of their, their minds that it's a possibility that you're going to do it, it changes the bargaining power um, at work and we shouldn't have to go through so many hoops. So part of what um, our generation now needs to do is to go about changing those rules, changing our rights at work, making them stronger... And that's going to be hard. It's going to be really hard and we shouldn't underestimate that but we also should know it wasn't easy for all the people before us either and it's absolutely what's necessary if we want to change inequality and if we want to make sure we have a different society. Okay, so we talked a lot um, to, at the beginning. We discussed shared experiences and we talked about what sexism at work looks like, some of its impacts and some of the... Um, strategies that individuals use to uh, try and deal with sexism at work. But now I want to move uh, the conversation on uh, to move it from the, uh, the, the individual as the site at which we've got to deal with this, so the victim essentially having to uh, face the sexism at work and find strategies to deal with it and work out how we can uh, work together in order to stop gendered violence and sexism at work the question and it's how do we balance working towards the empowerment of individual workers to speak up and the problem of focusing too much on individual responsibility in other words moving away from the problem as a cultural workplace issue to the idea 
Um, I think what uh, is acceptable in society for behaviour changes all the time and the boundaries are set all the time and they're not static, they change. And so you can look at Donald Trump for an example of that. Sorry, but um, very quickly, to sharpen your mind, but um, what would have been acceptable behaviour as a president has changed. He's pushed it right out. He's changed that. I remember I reflect on when Julia Gillard was Prime Minister and how long we all sort of put up with the sexism. We all knew that's what was going on that was coming um, at her and she chose not to call it for what it was and I respect that position entirely um, um, earlier on for all the reasons she didn't but it's sort of we all decided so a collective responsibility like not to sort of stamp on it early on and I think that all of a sudden you get called this and then you get called something worse, you get called something worse and space is created to make that okay. It becomes a new normal. So if if you accept that way of thinking, I think that means you've got to stamp on it early on. Like you've got to stop it before it becomes Donald Trump. Uh, I think what's a really important and interesting question that Barb raised about uh, the issue of sexism in unionism or the perception of unions in terms of gendered violence and sexism would be interesting. So I'll give it to Sally, then I'll throw to the rest. Um, I have two strategies for dealing with sexism in the union movement. One is to disrupt from within. So I'll be doing that. That one. And also um, knowing there's responsibility with leadership and that there's many women leaders before me, starting from Jenny George, you know, the first, you know, woman leader of the ACTU and knowing I listened to a lot of their lessons and I've listened also to a lot of our other leaders like your leader and and rank and file people and there's, um, I think uh, people have got to the end of sort of saying we've got to just talk the blokes around. Like if we just, if we're reasonable and we argue why that we need to be here in equal numbers, we'll eventually get there and that hasn't worked. People have been doing that and they've been doing a bloody good job of it. There's no better advocates than all the, you know, women trade unionists, very tough, you know, excellent advocates and it still hasn't worked. So I think we're moving to the point, well, okay, if it's not work, we've got to have quotas. So I think that's where we're going to be. Uh, yep, did, did, that's directed at Sally. So the question is, um, there's strength in numbers. When addressing these kind of issues, there's strength in numbers. But when you've got dwindling numbers, how do we uh, increase those numbers? Um, okay, so I think there's uh, three elements to this. Um, first of all, I think that the destruction of good, secure jobs and the casualisation of the workforce is a big element, unspoken element of union membership decline because if you don't have basic security on whether you're going to be on the roster tomorrow, it's a bit harder proposition to stand up or to join a union or to act collectively than if you do have a secure job and that that's something that doesn't get talked about much. So I, I, I believe that um, we need to do something about that and to change the laws to give working people more security in their in their jobs because this is a way they take power off us and a way that they stop us organising as well. So, um, first of all that. 
second of all, I think that we can inspire people and we can inspire a new generation who's sick of business as usual and sick of, you know, mass inequality, sick of not having those basic rights, sick of seeing what happened, you know, for their parents' generation, their grandparents' generation not being the life for them and give them hope that it can be different and that they can be part of a movement that is going to go about fighting to change that. So there's a role that we can all play in inspiring people to be part of a movement and ask them to join to be part of that. And finally, there's a thing that there's always been, it's just organise, organise, organise. It's hard work. Every generation has to do it over and over again. And there's nothing that will, um, there's no silver bullet, nothing that will substitute from that. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. Yes, you're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and we've come to the end of the program. The beginning of the program, we were looking at the uh, potential, the changes uh, that are mooted by the Victorian government, the anti-masking and public order bill, which is reaching the uh, upper house probably May the twenty-fourth. We uh, listened to a piece from Emily Howie, who is the Director of Legal Advocacy from the Human Rights Legal Centre. She was at an event put together by the Melbourne Activist Legal Legal Support Group, that's MELS. MELS is also having another Activist Lawyers Network Forum, uh, which is on May the 30th, that you might be interested in. It's going to uh, have uh, a panel of... uh, uh, people who are very experienced, Robert Robert Starry, Starry Norton, Helpen Criminal Lawyers, Megan Fitzgerald from the Fitzroy Legal Service and Matt Wilson from the Fitzroy Legal Service. They're uh, going to be looking at uh, the same kind of issues. Uh, Melbourne Activist Legal Support and Amnesty International Victoria are holding a forum to launch a specialist legal network to protect human rights. The initial activities of the network will focus on protecting protest rights and utilising and developing lawyers' skills and knowledge regarding activist rights and how to support them. That's at 6pm Tuesday 30th of May at the Federation of Community Legal Centres, Level 3, 225 Burke Street, Melbourne. You can uh, obviously look that up on Mel's website if you want to go to that event. Uh, We heard from uh, go for pensioners, Jeff Fider, who was able to tell us a little bit about what happened with the budget when it comes to housing. Uh, not not good news there. Uh, the uh, government proceeds to unravel uh, the people who have little uh, for the benefit of those who have a lot. We heard from Kevin, this is the week that was, and then we heard from Sally McManus, who is the new and first female secretary of the ACTU. She was at an event put on by the Victorian Trades Hall Women's Centre, 
one of a series, the second in a series that will go on because it was a great uh, success and both of them have been, Feminism in the Pub. Uh, Sally was one of the members of the panel. There were others. There was a panel of four. And if I didn't give the, a Guernsey to any of the other voices, but it was uh, very illuminating, all of it. If you want to hear more of the other panel members as well as Sally, Women on the Line, which is a sister program on 3CR, Women on the Line, it uh, plays first Sunday, 6.30 a.m., and it's also on at Monday, 8.30 a.m. for listeners who want to hear more from Feminism in the Pub. Coming up next is the Asia-Pacific Currents. Don't forget that they've got an event coming up. I'm sure they'll tell you all about it. Uh, I'll remind you about Fair Go for Pensioners before I put you out on the doorstep or if you're continuing to listen, which you should, but uh, I might not be Robinson Crusoe is the song I'm going to go out with. Uh, so here's from Fair Go for Pensioners before I leave you with a song. Fair Go for Pensioners is holding a protest rally on Wednesday the 24th of May at the State Library of Victoria at 11am to defend our rights against continuing cuts to welfare payments and essential public services. This means down goes living standards of low-income groups and up goes poverty. Australia does not have a welfare problem, it has a poverty problem. Take a stand with Fair Go for Pensioners to defend your rights. The State Library of Victoria, 11am, Wednesday the 24th of May. Fair Go for Pensioners is a 3CR supporter. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. 
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.